Episode 291 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by FreshBooks Cloud Accounting Software, offering you a free 30-day trial, access to all their features, no obligation. FreshBooks.com slash Read to Lead and enter Read to Lead in the How Did You Hear About Us section right now. We don't actually communicate all that well with the people we love and know us best. And part of it is because we make assumptions about what they know about us and understand about us. Hello and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I'm Jeff, and I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in your business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. My goal is to help you narrow this reading list to the things you need to be paying attention to and glean from these books the key insights and main ideas from the authors themselves. And today's author joining us shortly is Celeste Headley. She's written a book called We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. I'll be asking Celeste to share about how nearly everything we've been taught about how to listen is wrong, tips for being more present and mindful in your conversations, why it's often necessary to check your opinion at the door, and lots more. I have a short list of communications-related books I've recommended to clients over the years, many of them featured here on the show. Celeste's book is now at the top of that recommendation list. I believe it to be one of the best books I've ever read on the art of effective communication. Do yourself, your coworkers, and your family a favor and pick it up right now. We Need to Talk by Celeste Headley. Celeste is an award-winning journalist and a professional speaker. In her 20-year career in public radio, she's been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Radio and anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. She's also served as co-host of the national morning news show The Takeaway from PRI and WNYC and anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for PBS World Channel. Her TEDx talk, Sharing 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation, has over 19 million total views to date. She has authored a couple of books and is rumored to be working on a third. More on that one a little bit later. Those books include Herd Mentality, H-E-A-R-D, and the book we're digging into today, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. Celeste, it's a privilege. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, one of the things I noticed early in the book is you're equating conversation skills with survival skills. What do you, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, specifically for homo sapiens, right? Because conversation <laughs> skills are not all that necessary for the survival of a shark. Um, but for homo sapiens, they are crucial. Uh, you know, we have all the, the best research that we have so far on how it was that homo sapiens came to be the the last man standing mm. um, in terms of human species. You know, there used to be several human species and, and a, a species like Neanderthal was infinitely physically superior to Homo sapiens. And the, the answer that we got is that our conversational skills were so adept that we became the best communicators and collaborators on the planet. You know, mm. that makes us pack animals in a way that other animals are. It's only wool and human beings, homo sapiens, <laughs> that regularly take down bisons because we communicate so well. We're pack animals. And that has been crucial to how we have survived over the millennia and come to, in many ways, dominate the food chain <laughs> on, on the planet. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's 
it's our superpower. It's our evolutionary superpower. Well, when it comes to uh, comparing us to to uh, other species, uh, I know that we're on par with goldfish when it comes to attention spans, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what are some of the, I mean, some are obvious, I guess, but what are some of the things playing into that in, in 2019 in, in, in your view? Into our attention span. I mean, the yeah. number one is our technology, obviously. It's not the only villain in the piece, if, <laughs> if you're going to use the word villain, right? Because our attention spans have been shrinking for quite some time. And, and people forget that the iPhone only came out in 2007. So that's a pretty recent development. Mm. Um, but we can deal with that one first, because when you talk about our attention spans being shorter than that of a goldfish, that comes out of research from Microsoft. And they were studying our habits on the internet, mm. meaning that every eight seconds or so, we want to click on another link and go somewhere else or, else, or click quick back to our email <laughs> or click over to our Twitter feed real quick. So that's our habits on the internet. And at this point, our cell phones and our smartphones are in our hands so much that it, it's kind of become that our internet habits are just our habits now, right? I mean, yeah. that's just the way we are. Um, and so it's actually causing a lot of disruption and possibly cognitive damage in terms of the, our, our brain's ability to focus at all. That's how bad the distraction epidemic has become. So I, I think in terms of distraction and attention spans, you have to start with tech. I have been guilty of looking at my wife upon being accused of mumbling and saying something akin to, you realize I talk for a living, right? Uh, and I, I have this or had this sense about me before reading your book for years that, that you know, being smart, uh, being creative, uh, being articulate made me a great uh, conversationalist. But that's that's not necessarily true, is it? No, it's not. And and to be honest, Jeff, I, as I say in the book, I made the same mistake. <laughs> um, I had always thought that I was really great in conversation and um, was very shocked to learn I wasn't. So yeah, talking and listening are two different skills. And without the listening portion, you're not having a conversation. And you can be the most engaging, entertaining speaker talker that there is. People may like to listen to you, but that doesn't mean you're in good in conversation because conversation requires turn-taking. It requires um, responding, not just listening to the other person. In other words, not just hearing them, but listening to understand them. Because one of the, the problems that a lot of good talkers like me and you do is we have all these great things to say. And so we just wait for the other person to stop talking <laughs> Mm. knowing what it is that we're going to say next. And we're just waiting till we have our chance to say what we want to say. That's not good conversation because you have to listen all the way to the end. Related to that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of hearing someone share something and, and, and immediately wanting to jump in and share my version of the same thing. Um, and that's something I think a lot of us do when someone's sharing bad news. We, we want yeah. to empathize with them or, or, or feel like we are. And our instinct is to share our own version of, of something bad. Why, why is that not a good idea? It is usually coming from a good place. <laughs> Sometimes it comes from this place of the fact that someone is sharing tragic news and you don't know what to say. Mm. And so we tend to default to the subject we know best, which is 
ourselves. But your mind is constantly supplying you with these memories in an attempt to help you understand what you're hearing. It's going to draw up this information. It's going to be, you know, there's those little neural librarians going through the archives, (laughs) finding all this information for you to help you better comprehend what you're hearing. But that information is for you. It's to make you a better listener. Um, and to better understand what you're hearing. This is a, a phenomenon that a sociologist named Charles Derber called conversational narcissism. Um, yeah, and he he describes it mostly among Americans, although it's been it's been detected all over, especially developed world. And basically, he's all he's saying is that we are extremely good at turning conversations back to ourselves. Charles Derber is a professor of sociology at Boston College, and his book that this came out in was called The Pursuit of Attention. And that's kind of where this comes from. If you think about this in terms of a movie, it's like we're constantly turning the camera back to ourselves, back, back, <laughs> back, back, back. Um, and, and that's what that is. He calls it the difference between a shift response, in other words, shifting attention back to yourself, or a res- support response, which would be supporting what the other person is saying. I find, Celeste, that I tend to do that, and I've noticed it quite a bit, with specific people. Not not in all conversations, but if I'm sitting down with a really good friend, someone who I feel accepts me warts and all, I feel like I'm more more likely to do that. And I'm more, more aware of, of, of wanting not to do that in, in conversations where maybe I'm meeting somebody for the first time or, or chatting with someone I'm trying to, to get to know. So, Jeff, you have really hit on something here. And in fact, research absolutely backs up what you've just said. Mm. Recent research. They have discovered that we are actually better at communicating. And when I say like more effective, I mean effective communication means that one person says something and the other person actually hears what the other person intended to say, right? Mm -hmm. Effective communication. That's more likely to happen between you and a stranger than you and someone you know really well. Mm. Yeah. And it's it's, they've tested this multiple times. We don't actually communicate all that well with the people we love hmm. and know us best. And part of it is because of what you just said. And part of it is because we make assumptions about what they know about us and understand about us. We're more likely to explain things more carefully to a stranger so that they really understand. Whereas with someone who knows us well, we just skip over that stuff and they don't understand and they feel uncomfortable asking because they get the sense that they're you're thinking they should. Should no, and so communication doesn't actually happen. And you can imagine how, among a partner or spouse, how that can really begin to pile up and eventually become a barrier or obstacle to a healthy relationship that no one quite knows where it started. Well, that's where it started. It started in the assumptions we make about what people know about us, what they understand, and the assumptions we make about how well we are communicating. So I'm not weird. <laughs> no. Well, you might be. <laughs> I started to say, wait, don't answer that. <laughs> not in that particular place. <laughs> not, not in that particular place. Well, talk about your view of some of the things, Celeste, we're so often taught uh, about appearing to listen, wanting to appear to the other person like we're listening, that, that you've labeled basically as, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but garbage. <laughs> yeah. Crap, yeah. I think I said in yeah. my TED Talk. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, look, I've been in public radio for a long time. When a public radio person has a problem, they hit the books. Mm. Um, 
And I read everything I could get my hands on in terms of having a good conversation. And then I was able to go and do exactly what you do for this podcast, which is I have a conversational laboratory at my disposal. Mm. I talk to all different kinds of people. I could test out each one of those things one by one. So I could say, okay, I'm supposed to nod my head for two weeks. I'm going to, you know, really do that. (laughs) Focus on nodding my head uh, and see if it changes things. And all of the advice I was giving made things worse. They at least didn't make anything better. So, you know, it it turns out that what people were doing was observing good, healthy conversations. And they would watch a good conversation and they would say, oh, look, when people are having a good conversation, they nod their heads and they maintain eye contact and they make these hand gestures and they say, "Uh uh-huh. So if you do all those things, you'll have a good conversation. But no, (laughs) correlation is not causation. (laughs) So if you're doing all those things, what you're doing is you're focusing on doing them. You're focusing on acting like you're paying attention instead of focusing on actually paying attention and really listening to someone does require your focus. That's what all your focus has to be in. And so that, that pretending that we've been taught for so long has actually really worsened our conversations. It's made everything worse. So that's one of the first things I always tell people is just flush all of that. It Mm. is just not good advice. Before I was a voracious reader, there's probably a lot of advice I gave over the years that you could flush and be no worse for the wear. But being a consistent reader, I like to believe has changed that dramatically. Over the last few years, I've been asked again and again about business advice. And one piece of advice I always give related to running your business is using the best cloud accounting software. And in my view, it doesn't get any better than FreshBooks cloud accounting software. They are sponsoring this episode of the Read to Lead podcast, and that means they're giving you complete and total access to their software free for 30 days. You can take it for a test drive, get to know everything about FreshBooks to see if it's right for you and your business. I can tell you this. I started using FreshBooks when my business was me and one client. And as my business has grown over the last decade, FreshBooks has grown with me. If you'd like to take FreshBooks on that free 30-day test drive, you can do that by going to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. Just enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. That way they know that I sent you. Again, it's freshbooks.com slash read to lead to find out more. Well, one of my favorite chapters from the book was the chapter called Set the Stage. I think that's chapter uh, four. And, and you share a compelling story in this chapter. You had some situations where you had interviewees who, well, at least in one case, stormed out of the room because certain expectations weren't met. And, and you were in a place where you didn't feel like you could do much to mitigate those sort of unmet expectations. But then someone walked into your studio where that, that sort of changed for you. Can you, can you share a bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, someone who was very, very nervous. I'm not sure she'd ever been on the radio before mm. and um, visibly nervous, right? Wringing of hands, <laughs> getting a little sweaty. And I said, are you okay? Can I get you some some water? And she says, you know, calm me down. Can you just walk me through everything that's about to happen? Just walk me through it. And I said, sure. 
<laughs> and I walked her through it and she visibly calmed down. Like you could see her mm. shoulders relaxing, moving down. And if you think about this, it's like when you go to the doctor and they say, okay, I'm about this, I'm about to do, you know, I'm about to give you a small shot in your upper arm. It's going to hurt just a little bit. And then, you know, in a couple hours you can take off the bandaid or, okay, we're going to take a ray, an X-ray. We're just going to see if there's a crack in the bone or whatever. And then this will happen and this will happen. They're trying to reassure you so that you're not afraid of the unknown. Mm. Um, it kind of links back to the title of the book. Like, why are we so afraid of those words? We need to talk. <laughs> it's because we always assume the worst. When mm. we don't know, we assume the worst. And I found this to be the same thing with conversations. When people don't know where a conversation is going, they assume the worst. And and you can, you can do something about those expectations. You can, if you're getting ready to talk to an employee, for example, and I think I use this as an example in my book, as soon as an employee walks into my office, they're already nervous. They're already afraid they're about to get fired because their brain goes to the worst possible mm. thing. And so I immediately say, you're not being fired. Nothing negative is happening to you. Here's what I want to talk to you about. I say that the first thing out of my mouth, mm. just to get that out of the way and allay fears. I wish those in positions of power in my work life back in the day <laughs> would have done the same thing. <laughs> yeah, right? It yeah. would have been so great. <laughs> well, one one quote that, that stands out to me in the book among many is, is this one. In order to have important conversations, you'll sometimes have to check your opinion at the door. Uh, how have you seen this Celeste play out in, in your own life? Well, you know, as a as a journalist, you end up talking to a lot of people you don't like <laughs> um, and don't agree with on mm. anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and your job is not to like them or not like them, right? Your job mm. is to get the information out of them that might be useful to your audience. And so you have to learn to do that. That is not a skill anybody's born with, I don't think. Mm. I think you have to learn how to set your opinions aside and have a respectful conversation. And when I started trying to do that in my personal life, when I stopped, you know, there's three kinds of listening. There's evaluative, there's interpretive, and there's transformative transformative is the deepest kind of listening that there is. That's where you're actually open to being changed by what you hear. Mm. Interpretive um, is, is your most common type of engaged listening. Interpretive is where you are actually listening to understand as Stephen Covey describes it. Mm. Uh, but evaluative is the most shallow kind of listening. And that is where you're only listening to check if you agree with that person. You're <laughs> literally evaluating whether you think they're right or they're wrong, or you agree or disagree agree. And that's the kind of listening I want everyone to get away from. Because it's not about whether you agree with everything you say, what you're trying to do is understand that person and how they came by those opinions. What are their sources? Why do they think that? Because whether you agree them or not doesn't make a bit of difference. <laughs> it, it won't change anything. No, there's no, there's no spectral tabulator keeping track of who you agree with. <laughs> <laughs> but your understanding of someone else can have an incredible impact, not just on you in terms of increasing your empathy, but on the other person as well, if you can create an empathic bond. So that's what I mean when I say check your opinion at the door. It, it, it won't make a difference, and it really could lead to a, an incredible conversation. 
Everybody needs to hear that. <laughs> it's fantastic yeah. advice. Uh, well, I have the uh, privilege, uh, Celeste, of uh, facilitating a monthly book club of, of Read to Lead listeners. And our book of the month for this month is We Need to Talk. Yay. And we, we met about it a couple of days ago and talked through it. And uh, a handful of, of attendees had questions they wanted me to pass along uh, to you. Right. Uh, one of those is from Therese, and she wants to know who you see performing at a high uh, conversational level. Who are your role model conversationalists, I guess? Okay, so my role model conversationalists, like, there's actually a number of them. Um, I would say in terms of in, in NPR, Steve Inskeep does an incredible job of listening during his interviews. He hears to what they're, the real meaning of what they're saying and, and really hears what they're trying to convey rather than the words that they're using, um, which is truly a, a deep kind of interpretive listening. You could also go to somebody if you're more spiritual and go to someone like the Dalai Lama, who even despite language difficulties also does the same thing. He tries to get at what you're really trying to say, right? Mm. Those are the kind of conversationalists who are excellent. There's a, there's, there's a number of them. My mind is sort of boggling. The people, the person people often go to is a Terry Gross who hosts a show called Fresh Air. Mm. She also, I think the great thing about Ter Terry Gross is her curiosity. And curiosity covers a whole host of sins. Um, you can interrupt <laughs> someone. You can disagree with them. If if those things are coming out of a place of curiosity, people feel as though you're they're still being heard. And if they feel they're being heard, they are way less likely to be upset with whatever you choose to do. So, I mean, any of those three, there's, there's a whole bunch of them that people who are listening at a higher level, Rachel Martin also um, does an incredible job at this. And I'm talking about professional people because those are the people that people can actually go to. And here, there's right. lots of my friends, but none of you are going to be able to <laughs> <laughs> listen to an example of, of how that works. Well, are good listeners generally seen as, as more charismatic then? No. I don't think so. I find myself in interviews trying to disappear. My goal in an interview is to let the interviewee shine, is to, to do enough research that I find what it is they know better than anybody else and bring that out. I don't need to sound smart. I don't need to sound like I know anything about their topic matter. My, my goal is to sort of fade into the background and really allow this person to be seen and heard. I'm so glad you said that. I've, I've had a chance to speak at a number of conferences, uh, podcast-related conferences oftentimes, about interviewing. And, and that's the exact same idea I try to get across to people. If you want to do an interview show, surprise, you're not the star. Yeah. <laughs> Your guest is. Yeah, exactly right. And people get that backwards all the time. And in mm. fact, um, people hire the wrong way for that all the time. I don't know if you've mm. noticed this. Oftentimes, people will hire really charismatic, outgoing people to be interviewers. And my opinion is that's often not the right way to hire. Mm. You know, in sales as well, uh, for a long time, people have been hiring salespeople who are really great talkers. But it turns out when you look at the figures, the people who rack up the highest sales numbers are the best listeners. Mm. Well, Laura wants to know one more question from, from my book club members. What about important thoughts that enter your mind when someone else is talking? Things you want or need to capture in the moment so you don't forget. Um, so one thing that I do is if, I, if I'm in a situation where I can do it, I just write down a note real quick. And then I go back to listening to them. If it's truly important, 
not like, oh, I really have to say this because this is a really interesting story and this person's really going to want to hear my interesting story. If it's truly important, like I can't forget to tell them this, then what I will do is say, hey, listen, let me interrupt you for just one thing. I just have to tell you this one thing. But then when you're finished telling them, you say, okay, I want to go back to what you were saying. The last thing you said was this. You were just telling me how your brother got to Amsterdam and then what happened. So if I'm going to interrupt someone to say something important, I will go right back to the point in the conversation at which I interrupted. Mm. Be very intentional about doing that. Yeah. Very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Celeste, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you in the time we have left, not directly related to the book. Before I do that, though, is there anything else from this book you want to make sure we know? The one thing I would say is um, don't put your cell phone down. It's not enough. You have to put it away. Mm. They did this. They've done this research and it's been replicated in which they had strangers come in and have these short, I think, 10 minute conversations, perhaps. And in half of those situations, they just set a cell phone down on the table that didn't make any noise and belonged to neither person. But when those conversations ended, though, people where a cell phone was present and visible were something like 60 to 70 percent more likely to say the other person was unlikable, untrustworthy and unempathetic. The, the cell phone has an impact on your brain that you are unaware of when it's visible. So if you want to have a good conversation, turn away from your computer screen so you're not seeing it in your in your visual, in your peripheral vision and put the cell phone away. Just drop it in a drawer and close the drawer. My mother-in-law is smarter than I give her credit for. That's why she has a basket at the door during holidays. And when you walk in to visit with family, your phone goes in the basket and it stays there for the entire visit. What's your mother-in-law's name? Her, her name is Jean. Good job, Jean. <laughs> well, I want you to think, Celeste, about uh, the books you've read, uh, which I'm sure are many over the course of your career. Uh, maybe pick out one or two titles uh, that have had an impact on you and share, if you can, how or why they impacted you as they did. Um, well, the first one I would want to say is called uh, The Knowledge Illusion. And it's it's basically explaining that a lot of the things that we think we know, we don't actually know. And that's not to say that uh, we're stupid. It's just that the human mind is a hive mind. So some of the things that we think we know are actually not in our brains, but they're in someone else's. Our brain says, oh, we know that. But in fact, it's just something that we could ask. We know subconsciously we could ask someone else and they would know it. <laughs> Someone in our team or someone in our circle would know it, but our brain often doesn't distinguish between those things. The other thing it it really brings to mind is that Google makes us think we know a lot more than we actually know. (laughs) So people who look up their symptoms on WebMD, for example, are less accurate about what's wrong with them, but because it gives them an illusion of knowledge, they're more likely to, to mistrust their doctor and not follow instructions. Yeah. So that's a really important one. Another one that I I read that I just loved was called by John Cacioppo, who actually invented the field, basically, not solely, but helped invent the field of social neuroscience. He wrote a book called Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Connection. I might have that wrong, Jeff, so correct me if I did. (laughs) But um, he was sounding the alarm fairly early on about the loneliness epidemic that we're now in at this point. How how incredibly dangerous loneliness is to a human being. You know, loneliness degrades your internal organs. Loneliness doesn't immediately lead to death, but 
that, you know, they've done studies, for example, in the UK, where they could by by looking at how many significant social interactions uh, and relationships these men have, they could predict who would still be alive in 10 years mm. with a fair degree of accuracy. So he, like I said, started sounding that alarm about the fact that we are isolating ourselves more and more and more um, and becoming more and more lonely. In fact, the millennials are the loneliest generation until you get to the generation behind them, Gen Z. Mm. So that had a huge impact for me on terms of sounding the alarm and giving people really concrete, not just saying, hey, you're lonely, go talk to people. But I try to give people really concrete things that they can do today that will actually make it better. Mm. Uh, Two recommendations that are brand new that have never been recommended before. So I always uh, love to find out about new books I haven't yet dove into. Uh, Well, I think most listening, myself uh, included, would love to someday give a TEDx talk, let alone one that's been viewed on the internet almost 20 million times. So how do you do that? (laughs) Give us some tips for delivering an impactful and, and memorable public talk. Yeah, I have no idea how you make a talk go viral, but I can tell you (laughs) how I wrote the talk that I wrote, which Mm. is that the prompt for me was think of something that's going wrong in the world and then tell us how to fix it. Mm. And I will say that a big mistake people make is they say, well, I've had this interesting thing happen to me. I'm going to talk about this interesting thing. But profiles um, or talking about life events are rarely good TED Talks. You need to, your your talk needs to be relevant. It need, Everyone needs to have a touchstone to it. And then you need to have an actual practical solution. I remember one of the very first comments on my talk was, wow, when they said 10 things, they literally meant 10 things. <laughs> <laughs> because so many people say, here's 10 ways to improve your, and, and they're, they're not actually Mm. 10 actionable steps, right? Like be honest, be straightforward, be clear, be as brief as possible and back it up. Don't let it be based on your gut instinct. Let it be backed up with not only your own experience, again, but with actual research that's out there that shows this will work. Yeah, we tend to think we need to share everything we know. I mean, I think your your entire TED talk where you share these 10 points is like 11 and a half minutes long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, honestly, I think that's what has one of the things that has made it successful. Everyone mm. has 11 minutes, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, uh, I want to ask you finally, what's ahead for you? Um, maybe this would be a good time to co- sort of tease us about this uh, this book you've just completed that that's coming out in the spring. Yeah, um, in March, it's coming up from Penguin Random House and uh, Harmony House, and it is called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. And it, it sort of came out of the first book in that I was trying to figure out what's going on, why, you know, for the first time in forever, life expectancies are going down in many parts of the world. Mm. What is happening? You know, Noam Chomsky said that it's not known at this point if if Homo sapiens is a viable species (laughs) because we just haven't been around long enough. He was talking about climate change, but I am talking about it in terms of how self-destructive we are. And so I spent years researching this and, and what I ended up with was our obsession with hard work, with efficiency 
and with productivity has gone so far and it's only 250 years old or so. Mm. We lived a very different life up to about 200 to the late 19th century. And that's when things began to go wrong. It's not the fault of technology (laughs) and it's just gotten a little bit worse incrementally as each decade has gone by. So it's not all alarming. Some of it is alarming, Mm. but there are also really simple science, not just science-based, but like human-based uh, solutions to it as well. I'm I'm pretty pumped about the new book. I think it could really start a revolution. Well, you've certainly piqued my curiosity. I'm looking forward to reading it. And if, if you'll be so kind, we'd love to, when the time comes, to have you back to talk about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, this book is again called We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. Celeste, thank you so much for gracing us with what you've learned in the research about this and your own experience. Really appreciate you being here. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for the good questions. I double checked and Celeste did get that book title right. We'll link to the two books she recommended along with her own book and any other relevant resources at the show notes page created just for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 291 for episode 291. If you're starting or running a business, you shouldn't be doing it without the right cloud accounting software. I recommend FreshBooks. Find out more about them and check them out free for 30 days at freshbooks.com slash read to lead, enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. For questions, comments, feedback on this episode or the podcast in general, I encourage you to write me directly, Jeff at read to lead podcast.com. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 